I wonder if you can think about a time when uh, you were either given something that you didn't deserve or a time that you gave something that somebody didn't deserve. And just stop for a moment and kind of think about what that was and in particular then too, how you felt about it, what you thought about it, what it meant to you in that uh, particular moment. I'd like to welcome you in if you're here with us today, if you're visiting here with us, if you're an 8 o'clock refugee who's here at 9.15, we've got a handful of those here this morning, so uh, good to see you guys here. We joked with them that we're not going to allow them to go back to 8 o'clock now that they're here, uh, but uh, they said they're going back, so I guess we'll see who wins that tug of war, but I'm joking, sort of. and we're glad that you're here, whether you're in person, online, glad that you're joining with us. Uh, my name's Kurt. We're in week three of this series called Name Dropper, where we are looking at names of God. And the purpose of this series has not just been to learn that God has multiple names, rather that God has multiple descriptions. That's kind of what the names of God in Scripture are all about, or describing who He is in our lives. And as we, we jump into this name today, it's a name that... Uh, really, I think, has so much influence in who we are today, what we, what we do today, and how we interact with God and with others today. To find this name, we uh, go back to the book of Genesis. And uh, to kind of get into this and set this up, I'm going to kind of let you know a little bit about who we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Abraham today uh, in, in the book of Genesis. If you're familiar with Abraham, you know his story, you kind of know how it goes. If you're not, just a real quick recap of Abraham goes kind of like this. We're introduced to him in Genesis chapter 12. When we're introduced to Abraham, he's already a 75-year-old man. His wife, uh, Sarah, is a little bit younger, uh, but still past the age of having children. And God promises him, you're going to have multiple descendants. Multiple offspring are going to come from you, despite the fact you're an older man and and, and you're no longer able to have children. You're going to have multiple descendants. And that's the promise. And Abraham's not very patient, if you know the story. He takes matters into his own hands a few years later. That's not quite what God had in mind, because he said, you're going to have a child by your wife, Sarah. And he goes on 24 years later in chapter 17 to reiterate that promise. He's now 99 years old. You're going to have a child by your wife, Sarah. Finally, in chapter 21, his son Isaac is born through his wife, Sarah, despite being 90 years old. And it's not very long after that that Abraham is put to the test. In fact, it's Genesis 22. It's actually several years later that he's called by God to sacrifice this son Isaac that he has waited a literal lifetime to get. Now, I don't know exactly how old Isaac here is here. Most scholars will say that he's either probably a teenager, possibly even a young man at this point. But he's called in Genesis 22 to sacrifice Isaac. And we see in this story a couple of important lessons. The first one we see is that Abraham obeys. He obeys God even though this doesn't make any sense. So he takes Isaac and they head out to go make this sacrifice. They're, they're heading off on uh, their, their, their donkeys. And as they get out there, Isaac makes a really important observation here. Hey, Dad, you forgot to bring the lamb that we're going to sacrifice. And Abraham says, don't worry, God's going to take care of things. And so the story goes on. They get to the top of the mountain, and he straps Isaac down. And, and Isaac is probably old enough to know what's going on here, but I, I it would be really fun to watch their conversation in this particular moment. I argue with my four-year-old at times. 
I haven't had quite this type of a discussion with him yet. Like, lay there and trust me, okay? <laughs> but just as he has the knife raised, ready to sacrifice, he hears a voice telling him to stop. Don't touch the, the, the boy. And he looks over and he sees a ram caught in the brush. And that's God delivering like Abraham believed that he would. I don't know if Abraham knew how God was going to deliver. He just knew that he was. And so we see, again, two lessons from this story, that he obeyed and he had faith, but number two, that he trusted God would provide, that God would deliver. And God did provide. God did deliver. And as we wrap that story up, Abraham makes a very bold declaration. We see it in verse 14 of Genesis 22. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. That's the name that we are going to look at today is what this translates back to. We see those four words. Those are hi- I highlighted those myself. Those aren't highlighted in the Bible. The Lord will provide. Four words in our English language, but in the Hebrew, it's two words. It looks like this in the Hebrew. It's the name Yahweh Yireh. Now, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the name Yahweh, how it just kind of translates to I am. That's kind of the best translation we can come up with for the name Yahweh Yahweh Yireh may look funny to us because we don't often read Hebrew, and unless you're just a really big uh, scholar of the Bible or just a language nerd, you probably don't pay that much attention to what that means, but we see it more often in a more westernized version that looks like this right here, Jehovah Jireh. That's the name of God that we're going to talk about today, and as we jump into this, I just kind of want to let you look at this for a moment and think about this for just a second here. That is how Yahweh Yireh looks to us, but just so you know, the name Jehovah, and we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks as Jehovah tacked onto a name, is not actually a name that you see in the Bible. Don't tell anybody, okay? That's our secret. What it is, it's kind of a Latinized version of Yahweh. Remember what I told you a couple of weeks ago? That Yahweh was not a name the Jewish people would say out loud. And because of that, there wasn't necessarily a consensus on how it was supposed to be pronounced. Anybody ever mispronounced somebody else's name because you saw it written and you didn't know how to say it? Well, you're just like those who tried to figure out what Yahweh was supposed to sound like. And so Jehovah is kind of, again, a Latinized westernized version of Yahweh. And while Jehovah is not a direct translation to the meaning I am, when you see Jehovah, just know that basically we're talking about God. It's not to say it's wrong to say that name, but it's just not maybe as true as you, again, growing up to me, that was what God's name was. Like he was just Jehovah and had a son named Jesus, you know, and that was what we called him. But Jireh, on the other hand, that is a direct translation of Yireh. And Jireh is a verb. Yireh is a verb in the Hebrew language that means will provide. So we're talking about God. We're talking about the idea that he will provide. That's the name of God today. That's the promise that Abraham made on that mountain that day that this name means we have a God who will provide. As we see this, that wasn't just a promise made by Abraham that day and for us to believe in today 2,000 years later. That's a promise that trickled down all through, all through the Bible. In fact, we see the psalmist write in Psalm 104 that he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make the faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. And what we see in this is this idea 
that just through nature, God provides. Without any help or work on our part, God provides. And I think what the psalmist is saying here and what Abraham is getting at is this promise that the very nature of creation is a sign of, God, the God, of, of God's grace. Just the fact that he provides for us, that creation provides for us, is a sign of his grace. Think about the, 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 the world around you. Okay, I know some of you like to garden. You, you plant vegetable gardens or you plant flowers or you do landscaping and, and you see what that looks like when it's done. But how often have you just gone into nature and you, you go into nature that's not really even been messed with by human hands and you see it providing for itself or for us? We see birds that will carry seeds and drop them and those seeds will plant and grow and become trees. Or bees, they'll pollinate different types of flowers. Or we see the nature then as it drops to the ground and rots, it actually will fertilize the ground around it and allow something else to grow and thrive from that. Kind of reminded of the uh, opening scene from The Lion King in the great circle of life. thought about holding a small child up here this morning, but nobody would trust me with their child to do that. So we didn't do that part, okay? <laughs> but we think about the nature. Think about our human bodies, our physical bodies too. Our bodies provide for us without any effort on our parts. Yes, I have to fuel my body with certain foods, and depending how I, how I eat is going to determine maybe how my body responds or how much rest I get. But how many of you this morning had to tell your heart to beat or your lungs to breathe or tell your brain to fire synapses down through your nervous system so that you could feel things when you touched them? Or they had to tell your internal organs to do the jobs they're supposed to do so that you could go about life. Yes, many of us have functions that we do voluntarily, but our bodies provide for us involuntarily. That's the mark of a creator that's full of grace in our lives. Seeing God's provision for us in, in our lives, folks, it should be a reminder of his grace in our lives. And here's the best part of it. When we talk about it being a mark of God's grace, he provides for us even though we don't deserve it. He does. That's what's remarkable about it. And I think he does this because it's a mark of who he is. It's a mark of the love that he has for us. Now, you've probably heard this phrase if you've spent much time in church the last several years. You've probably heard the phrase, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. Now, that's not an untrue statement, but if that's the case, then why did God give us happiness as an emotion? Why did God give us feelings as an emotion? I think God cares about your happiness, not above holiness, not above righteousness, but he does want you to enjoy the life around you. He's given you certain desires. He's given you certain passions in life. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples that the Son of Man has come to bring life and bring it to the full. And he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but he comes to give life, to give it to the full. In other words, he wants us to experience what the world has to offer through him, not apart from him. What, what we get because of his creation, that thief that comes to steal, to kill and destroy, it's, it's, it's our enemy, the devil. But we see him playing out through the world who will tell us constantly that what we have isn't enough, that what we are isn't enough that we always need to be striving to, to, to take care of ourselves, to find somebody else to take care of us, not to just rely on a creator who provides for us. 
I can look at my own life and think of many times when I have tried to provide for myself and it works for a while, then it runs out pretty quick. Maybe you can relate to that. Now, we have a God that we need to rely on and trust in because he provides everything for us. So we kind of thought about this this week because this is a, a name on provision. How, how do we view this God, this Yireh, this Jireh? How do we view him today standing here? I firmly believe what we read in Scripture was meant to be read the time it was written, and now in every space in between and every space still to come. The Bible transcends time. It transcends culture. So what do we make of this? This, this is gyra. What does it mean to us? A couple of things that we can think about how it impacts us and then how it should alter us. The first is this. In gyra, we will find contentment. We find contentment. I think about this. Contentment is one of those things that is a buzzword that depending how you use it can be a good thing or a bad thing. If you are an athlete or if you're in any kind of competitive field, contentment isn't a good thing. You need to strive to get better. I always heard the minute you, you find contentment is the minute you've been passed by somebody else. At least that's what they always told us back in the weight room in high school. Obviously, I took full advantage of that, as you can tell. <laughs> if you're in a competitive market, a competitive business field, it's hard to settle into contentment. You've got to strive to continue growing. But when it comes to our lives, that's where contentment can be a good thing. Maybe you've heard this verse from the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Philippians chapter 4 that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You've probably heard it, you've probably said it, and you've probably said it in the wrong way. I have. Many times. Back when I was in high school, I played soccer and uh, was on the football team one year as a kicker. And uh, one of the things I always did was I wrapped tape around my cleats. I always wore soccer cleats. They have really long shoelaces for some reason. So I would always wrap tape around uh, the middle of my foot to tape my laces down. And I'd always write a Bible verse out on the side of it, on the tape. And Philippians 4.13 was one I wrote every single week. And I might even tape it to my wrist because I wanted everybody to know that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, including sit on the bench and not get in the game. Yes, I could go kick that 40-yard field goal through Christ who gives me strength, but I can also sit here and watch the team play. Yeah, I can do all things. Like, you know, I can totally dunk a basketball, I can totally hit a golf ball 400 yards. I can totally run five miles without stopping. I can't do any of that. That doesn't matter right now. Through Christ who gives me strength, sure. Let's, let's drop these goals and I'll show you how good of a basketball player I am right now. No, we have to think about this verse here. I watched a guy in the weight room one time. I know I was there one time. You have to believe me. I was in the weight room one time. And this guy was getting ready to bench press way too much weight for him. And as somebody who's done that, I feel like I'm qualified to judge that. He was about to bench press way too much weight, and he drops it down, and the guy who's spotting him is going, come on, come on, you can do all things through Christ. He couldn't do that, and it ended badly for him. Now, we use this verse as a declaration like we're Superman, right? No, to get this verse for what it is, you've got to stop and step back and read what Paul wrote just before this in verse 12. Because here's what he says in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
You know where Paul's at when he writes these words? He's sitting in prison. If he can truly do all things like Superman, he can walk right through the, the prison bars. He can just speak a word and his, his, his captors would just fall over. No, he's not talking about physical attributes here. I believe he's talking about a mental and a spiritual state. That through Christ and with Christ, we can do anything if we find contentment in him and not rely on what we can do physically around us. See, contentment can be a beautiful thing. It's something I think God wants us to learn. I think it's something he wants us to teach others. But more than any of that, he wants us to experience that contentment, that joy, that, that love that we find in him and through him and in him alone. That's why the writer of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 3. That we should lean not on our own understanding, but in his. Just trust in the Lord with all your heart. I always, I always uh, turn my slides in kind of Thursday, sometimes Friday, depending on how productive I've been that week. And it never fails that Saturday I always see something like, man, that would have been so good. Yesterday I'm sitting there and going over my stuff, and I, I get on Facebook for a few minutes, and I come across this meme and I'm like, man, this meme just really hit home because it shows this guy inside a fold-up ladder, inside it, like the ladder has folded up on him and fallen over. And he's got one arm sticking out here and one arm sticking out down here and his legs sticking out and his head's kind of poking through. And the caption said, this is me when I try to lean on my own understanding. And I thought, man, that, who got that picture of me, number one? And how did they make a meme out of it, number two? And that would have been really good to put in here. Because isn't that the truth? Like, we try to just take care of ourselves, ourselves. <laughs> That's what happens. When we try to rely on what we can provide or what others can provide rather than what Jaira can provide, that's often what's going to happen. See, here's what we need to understand. Contentment is based on trust. It's based on trust. We are made in God's image, and he made us to be reasonable and logical, but he did not make us to be God. He made us to be in a very small measure like him. And in a very, very minuscule measure, we share in his wisdom and in his knowledge and in his power, but in no grand scale do we have any one of those things. We certainly don't have it to the extent that he does. Our wisdom is limited. Our knowledge is limited. Our power is limited. And God designed us in a way to trust in him and in his knowledge and wisdom and power and find our contentment there, and to find our joy there, and to find everything that we need there. You don't have to go very far into the Bible to find an example of what happens when you don't. Adam and Eve, the second page of my Bible, when we see them, suddenly what God has provided for them isn't enough. And they fall into the trap that we do so many times, where they're told, you deserve more. You should want more, because this, is, this isn't bad. This is good, but there's something better out there, too. And they fell for the trap, and we do, too, probably on a daily basis. And what happened when they fell for the trap? Sin entered the world. They're removed from the garden, and we're still dealing with it today. I mean, you think about this for just a moment here. When you stop focusing on Yahweh, stop focusing on Jireh, what, what happens? Well, you don't need to be an economics expert to realize what it is that drives all of our media. It's, it's advertisements. 
It doesn't matter if you're watching the news, if you're watching a ball game, if you're watching a TV show, if you're just scrolling through your phone. Advertisements are everywhere. That is the industry that fuels everything else. Why? Because they know they have something that we want. It's their job to convince us that we need it. And they don't have to try very hard with some of us. They really don't. Advertisements are everywhere. And maybe they don't convince you that you need it, but they convince you that your life will be better if you, you jump on and take it. And let me just tell you right off the bat, before I poke and preach at any of you with this, I'm right at myself. I am a sucker for the next great thing. I am a sucker for the new toy. I'm a sucker for a brand name at a discount price. Okay? If I get a chance to go into an outlet mall, you better believe that's where I'm headed. Okay? Sorry. Just is what it is. So I'm preaching it myself. And this is one of those things I'm really good at telling you about and not putting into practice myself. So if you want to hold me accountable, feel free. Okay? But that's what we're being convinced of. And what's crazy is the devices that we have in our homes pick up on this. They have algorithms in them that if we look at certain things on our phones or computers, that's what we're going to get advertisements for. If we even mention them, they're listening. You ever done that? Like, you know, we might look at getting a new TV. What happens five minutes later, you're scrolling through Facebook. There's an advertisement for a TV. I told Jennifer the other day, I said, I think our devices are listening to us. And she laughed, and Elsie laughed, and Alexa laughed, and Siri laughed. And... But it's true, right? They're picking up on us. They're learning us. Why? Because they know something about us. That we feel like we need stuff to fulfill our lives, and we've got the money to do it. You want to know a truth about our culture right now? About our country right now? Our country is richer than it has ever been. And it's sadder than it's ever been. We, I know we're in a bit of an economic tough spot right now. I don't know how long it'll last. I'm far from an economics expert. But per capita, Americans are making more than we've ever made. Depression and anxiety are also higher than they've ever been. These last couple of years have done a number on us. And what happens? What happens when we get this mix and why do you think we get this mix? What happens is we start looking for things to fill that bucket, but what causes it? I think it's simple. That knowledge and that wisdom and that power that we mentioned a moment ago, we just decide we're going to grow in those. And maybe we do. We gain more knowledge. We gain more wisdom. We gain more control. And we gain more wealth that kind of feeds that control. And the more you gain those, the less you are dependent on anyone else. That includes God. I think that is why the Apostle Paul wrote these words to, to Timothy. Back in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people, he says. If I didn't know any better, I'd think he was writing about us today. But again, the Bible transcends time. That, that passage applies to so many cultures. It just happens to hit us right now. 
That last little bit he says there, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. There's a name for that. It's called permissive Christianity. And the idea of permissive Christianity is that it's somebody who does love God, or at least they believe that they love God. And they might even come to church, maybe even on a regular basis. Maybe they even go a little bit beyond that. But they have not fully given themselves to God. They haven't fully surrendered to him because they're still trying to make everything work on their own. They're providing for themselves. And folks, Jaira calls us to have full trust in him, full faith in him. Because here's the truth of the matter. Trust in the God who provides That's how we'll find contentment. When you trust in the God who provides, that's how you'll find true contentment. It's not going to happen otherwise. Again, I can go buy all the stuff I want. And let me tell you, the stuff, it makes me happy for a little while. But here's the thing about all that stuff. One of these days, it's going to wind up in the junk pile. Everything that I own, everything, one of these days, will be done away with. My home, all the stuff in it, my car, my clothes, whatever. One of these days, it's going to be trashed. Sure, maybe some of my stuff my kids might want, maybe my grandkids might want one day. One of these days, there'll be enough generations down the line, like, who is this old quack that we were related to? We don't want this stuff anymore. Let's get rid of, get rid of that. The God who provides gives us true contentment because the God who provides is everlasting and limitless. What else do we get in Jaira? In Jaira, I think we find a freedom to focus on our mission. We have a mission, and this is something you'll hear me talk about a lot as we move forward, because the mission of the church is so important to me, because it's so easy to get distracted from that. But focusing on Jaira lets us block out all of the nonsense and focus on him alone. That lets us accomplish what he has called for us to do. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words, don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat or what we drink or what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he'll give you everything that you need. Now in this passage here, he's talking about money and how that relates to worry and stress and anxiety, but we can kind of umbrella this into so many other areas. Because when we think about these ideas, and how it pertains to the church especially. What happens when we start to focus on all of those things that might cause us worry? What does that lead to? Well, it's going to lead to frustrations. It's going to lead to irritations, maybe even anger, anxiety, maybe depression. See, too often we start to think about what it is we're supposed to do, and we get in the way of it ourselves. Even when it comes to our daily walk as Christians or our collective walk as the church, we start thinking about what we need to do to accomplish this. And we get in the way of that. And we forget that Jesus gave us a very specific task, a very specific mission to accomplish when he told us to go into the world and to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to obey everything he's commanded. See, what I love about this verse, is I do this a lot. I, I focus on what Jesus says, but I focus on what he doesn't say. He tells us what to do. He doesn't tell us how to do it. He just tells us what to do and who to go approach to do this to, or to do this for. 
not the how. But yet too often as a church, what do we do? We squabble over the how. I've seen this in every church I've been a part of. And it's just natural because the how often is very personal to us. It means something to us because it's, that's my job that I'm good at or I really like it. Or, you know, we used to do this in my old church and it worked. Or, man, I just think this would be the best idea ever. We personalize it. And I'll be very honest, this is, this is me a lot of times saying some of these things. Too often we've got to step back and remember it's not about me. It's not about how I do it. God doesn't actually need me. <laughs> like, if God wanted to, he could just blanket this whole thing. He invites us to be a part of this. And he calls us to be a part of this. And we get to do this alongside him. It's one of the things I pray every week before I come up on stage. God, let me get out of your way. Let this not be about me whatsoever. Let me open my mouth and you come out. And by now, a year into this ministry, me being here, it should be very obvious the times I have opened my mouth and I came out instead of him. Because there's been plenty of times I walked off going, did I say that? <laughs> Is that how that came out? Because that's not what was supposed to come out. No, I'm getting in God's way. Because sometimes I think I know better. Because I can do it better, right? I don't lean into him and rely on him that he's already taken care of it. He's provided everything for me. And he calls me to go be his hands and his feet, yes. But I need to remember that he's equipped me in every way to do that. He's equipped you too. See, here's the problem too often. We focus so much on the how that we forget about the what and we forget about the who that what is supposed to serve. And when we do that, we're forgetting an important important lesson about the church and about how God wants us to approach the church because the God who provides, he wants us to know that the mission is greater than the method. And too often we confuse these to being the same thing. Mission is what, method is how. What is what we're supposed to go accomplish. The how, that's up to us. And too often when we focus too much on that, whether it's our personal daily walk or collectively as a church, what we're doing is we're trying to take control and failing to trust in the God who provides. So trust in him, lean into him. Because in that moment, we will learn to let go of all of that and we'll be free to focus just on the mission. And finally, and maybe the most important thing, in Jira, in the God who provides, we are reminded of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Because the God who provided for us, provided creation, he provided food for us to eat and water for us to drink, and as he said, he provided clothes for us to wear, he provided a body to function for us. Above all that, the greatest thing that he gave to us in his provision was sending his son to die on the cross for us. Romans chapter 8 tells us such a beautiful picture of what that means in our lives because it ends like this. It says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us? From the love of God. What trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither the height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Paul could have said literally nothing, literally nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus went to the cross for you. We had a sin problem from Adam and Eve. We mentioned him a moment ago. And we tried to fix that situation ourselves. But in his ultimate love, Jireh, Yireh, provided for us the ultimate way to be brought back to him. So Jesus went to that cross and he died a horrific and painful death. And he took all the shame and rejection that came with it that we deserved, that you and I deserved. And he took that on himself. And in so doing, he forgave us of the sins that we we live in. He justified us. He redeemed us for that sinful life. And also, too, he reconciled us back to the Father. He restored the relationship to God that we had broken. Maybe you can relate to that. If you've ever had a broken relationship, maybe with a parent or a child, maybe with a loved one, with, with a spouse or a significant other, or just somebody in your life that's important, if that relationship has been broken, you know the pain and the loneliness that that can cause. And how many times have you done all you can to fix it or to fill it? And it just doesn't happen. If that's the case, especially if you're a parent and that relationship is a child, you know the love that you have for that child is never going to be broken. No matter what they do or how far they stray, that's just a sliver of the love God has for us. And we see that that through Christ, the ultimate gift God gave to us, the ultimate provision he gave us, nothing will ever, ever separate us from his love. Nothing. It's his provision, what he has given to us, his love and his mercy and his kindness that not only protect us, but they disarm us. They, They protect us inwardly and also outwardly. And it leaves me with this promise that with God, we need nothing, but apart from him, we have nothing. And I can think that I've gotten myself taken care of, that I've got everything that I need, that I can take care of, I can provide it. And apart from God, I have nothing. I have a lot of junk that one day is gonna be thrown away. A lot of junk that won't sustain. A lot of stuff that's here today, and as it says, like the wildflower is gone tomorrow. So what does that mean for us? What do we do with that? What do we do with this God who provides so that we always lean into and onto him? I think it's simple and it's practical. Let me ask you a question to kind of lead into that. When was the last time you remember being totally overwhelmed by the kindness of God, by the grace of God? When's the last time? You just stopped and you reflected and you looked and you thought, wow, God, I didn't deserve that at all. And not in the negative sense that we often do. God, I didn't deserve that. No, in the positive, like, this is, I don't deserve this at all, God. And you did it anyway. When's the last time that you did that? If you're not sure, and that's okay if you can't think of that, let me just give you some ideas. Start thinking of some specific and practical ways that you've seen God's grace and love in your life. 
and then learn to dwell on those things. Because as you dwell on those things, you'll actually begin to empower your trust in him more, to lean into him even more. So here's a takeaway, and I think it's on your note sheet. It's a simple idea. Starting today, make a note every day this week about one thing God has given you. I don't care what it is. It could be something practical and material. It could be a relationship. It could be the breath in your lungs. It could be salvation. You can be as spiritual or as unspiritual with this as you want. And I'll even make you another challenge. I said to do this for one day this week because that's pretty simple. But if you want to take it a step further, do this one thing every day until you can't think of anything else to, to think of. Just start this and see where it goes. I know a lot of times we do this in November, you know, Thanksgiving. We don't need a holiday to pause and be grateful for what God has done for us. That should be an everyday thing. In fact, one of my, my mentors and my former professors used to always start every single prayer. First by praising God, but then by thanking God. Praised him and then he thanked him for everything. And I always hear this line, again, usually around Thanksgiving, what if tomorrow you woke up and the only things that you had in your life were what you thanked God for today? Stop and think about that for a second. You may have a lot of good things, but how many things do you have? So take this challenge. And, and, and here's where I'm going with this. The more you can begin to thank God for, that he has provided for you, the more you're going to understand just how much you need his provision. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you give and you provide far more than we could ever want or ever need or ever understand. That in your grace, God, in your grace, you give to us beyond what we could possibly deserve. And God, I know for me, I, I'm, I'm so good at just looking at what I don't have and focusing on what I want or what I feel like it's unfair that I can't go get on my own. But God, I miss. I miss some of those littlest things. God, I pray that we learn, everyone here, to find true contentment in you. Even if that means an absence of material things, we don't need them because we have you. And you give us the breath in our lungs and you give us the ability to just be and to be with you. God, I pray for anybody struggling with that right now. You would give them peace. Give them a knowledge of who you are you always will be. That you came for us because you loved us. We pray this in your name.